This is AutoLine This Week, the show that gets you inside the global automotive industry. Underwriting for the production of AutoLine This Week has been provided by RSM. For challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM, audit, tax, and consulting for the middle market. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. You know, there's something of a mobility revolution going on here. Well, there's ride hailing and ride sharing. And what we want to know is, is there really a business case for it? And how does this impact the automotive industry? And helping me get to the bottom of that today include my three panelists, who are John O. Anderson with the consulting firm KPMG. Jack Pokshava is with the Society of Automotive Engineers, and Sam Abulsamid is with Navigant Research, and I want to thank all three of you for being here today. Glad to be here. So let's start out. I mean, uh, when we look at the financials, Uber loses money, Lyft loses money, Ford had this ride-hailing van service that they called Chariot. They just shut that down because it wasn't working. So, Sam, is there a business case for these mobility services? Uh, that's yet to be demonstrated. So far, you know, we've seen a lot of companies try a lot of different variations, car sharing, micromobility, van ride services like Chariot you mentioned. And the one common thread through all of these different operational models is that nobody's yet figured out a way to make a profit. So uh, I think long term, I think they probably will, but it's going to take a lot of refinement. But right now, there, there isn't really a, a sustainable business case for any of these. John, same question to you. Is there a business case? It's going to vary island by island. And when I say island, these are cities by cities. And in some cities where you don't drive enough to justify ownership costs, people tend to like look at the option and want to push the button and have a car delivered to them. So you may not see them get rid of all their cars, but you may see them get rid of one of their cars and opt towards mobility as a service. But can you deliver the service at an affordable cost and make profit? Still being, it's still an open question. And, and well, sorry, the, the, there's also the, the question of affordability, you know, across the, the population. There, you know, in a lot of these cities like San Francisco, LA, New York, there's a significant population of people that can't afford those services, but there's also a substantial population that can't, that need other options. Right, it's always gonna be a choice, a choice between which mode makes the most sense at the most cost and is the most convenient. And if you spend all your time looking at San Francisco or looking at New York, you may get to the wrong answer if you're a company. You gotta look at the other cities, Indianapolis, Dallas, Atlanta, Washington, D.C. These cities tend to be more similar than not. And New York, Chicago, San Francisco tend to be fairly unique. Jack, what do you think? Is there going to be a case for these mobility services? Well, as you know, um, SAE International, our mission is mobility. Uh, we are looking at this from a different, through a different uh, 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 prism. We apply science, we look at it from a safety perspective and what impact any one of those mobility modes today and tomorrow will have on environment, on our safety and so forth. So we kind of stay away a little bit from, from the business case. We just try to apply our engineering tools and our engineering principles to what is coming towards us. And it's actually a fascinating time right now where we have 
all these different choices across the mobility spectrum. Does it matter if they're not making money right now? I mean, the services are growing like crazy. I mean, Uber and Lyft just in the United States, as you all know, it's Didi in China, it's Ola in India. It's, it's a global phenomenon, not just happening here. With the amount of growth that's taking part, you got to believe there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, don't you, Sam? Uh, well, if you're going to continue to invest in these, then yeah, you do have to have that belief. Um, whether or not that pot of gold is gold or lead, you know, is is, is remains to be seen. Um, you know, services like ride-hailing services, you know, they're effectively you know modern kinds of freelance taxi services. But you know, the 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 problem for all of these companies is that unlike traditional taxi services, there's uh, there's no upper limit on the supply. Um, but, you know, and so in order to get demand to fill that supply, you have to drive down prices. So it's always a race to the bottom. So, you know, taxi services, part of the reason why taxi services have survived so long is because we've always had limits on how many cabs there could be. And that kept prices at a level where it could be sustainable. So far, we haven't figured out how to do that with these modern services. Go ahead, Jack. You were going to say? I, I, I want to be a believer. I, I am a believer in innovation. And, and so I'm, I'm kind of defending this this approach. We don't know, but did we really believe that Amazon is going to happen, the way it happened? Um, and it and, lost money for years. And, and, yeah. and lost money for for decades. Um, and and now is the the market leader. So I think that it's going to happen. The question whether it's a trend or a fad, we'll just have to be very patient and see what what happens there. Um, right now, there are way too many things happening, and it's like a windmill. Jack, what I find intriguing with the SAE, SAE has always set automotive standards. In fact, if you pick up a can of oil, you'll see it's SAE you know, 10W30 or whatever the number happens to be on the can. SAE set those specs. And now you're setting specs for these electric scooters that are showing up in cities. Talk a little bit about why SAE would get into that when it traditionally has always been passenger cars and trucks. Well, we look at the mobility as the system of systems. So it's not just the automotive, it's not just trucks, it's not just the, the, uh, the motorcycles and so forth as we did in the past. We are seeing now these new entrants coming into play and, and they become uh, part of that mobility spectrum uh, and we have to somehow convince them that uh, developing certain norms, specifications, rules uh, in terms of safety will actually benefit them long run. They still can compete after satisfying the certain you know, uh, common approach and common solutions to it. Jono, any thoughts? Scooters, they're going to be the, the thing. <laughs> they're really hot right now. I mean, they're growing like crazy. I, I, I think it's a choice for every person to make on any given day. It's a mode choice of what's most convenient and what's going to be the most cost-effective and fastest way to get to their destination. And if it's, if it's a scooter that gets you there quickest and easiest without a hassle, then they're going to pick a scooter. And if it's a mobility as a service option, they're going to push a button for it. And if it's their own car, they're going to use that. So if I may add, um, I think that we're, we're going through the uh, transformational time of, the technology, of technology, but, but we're also going through transformational time, generational, generational transformation, right? Where we have younger people that uh, have different view on uh, ownership of a vehicle. Uh, they also travel short distances and they are looking for options in that, uh, in that type of uh, uh, category. So there was an interesting, uh, uh, interesting survey done by a company called Inrex where they um, looked at 
20, for 25, I think it was 25 million trips in the urban environment and they, in the U.S., and they detected that actually about 50 percent of those trips are between one and three miles. Uh, and then, so the, then the question is, do we really need a car to uh, go for an ice cream? Uh, should we look for something else? And I think this is what the Silicon Valley and others are looking at and, and trying to figure it out. Yeah, in, in a world of increasing urbanization, where more and more people globally are moving into cities, you know, the, the key is to, that mobility has to be an ecosystem. There isn't just a single mobility solution. Micromobility is part of that solution. So is mass transit, traditional mass transit. You know, the, the, ultimately, the key is to, to right-size the vehicle or right-size the mode for every trip. You know, for a lot of those shorter trips, one, two miles, a scooter or a bike is a far better solution than waiting around for an Uber or a Lyft or a DD car or, you know, in most cases, taking a bus. Um, but for those high-density routes, you know, buses, subways work really well for that when, you're move, when you want to move a lot, of, a lot of people along individual routes. You know, the promise of autonomous vehicles was that it was going to bring the cost down because once you took the driver out of the equation, man, could you save a lot of money. Does that still hold true, Jono? Do we need autonomous vehicles to make this mobility revolution really happen? Well, aut autonomy will bring the cost down, but I think more important for autonomy is it's going to make it safer and it's going to run all the time in the background for the vehicles we already have. Um, but it's also going to bring deliveries to life. It's going to change the game around last mile delivery. How and so? As, uh, by providing autonomous delivery solutions for, where, for last mile. And, and if you do that, it's going to increase a lot of, my, I mean, if we're talking about micromobility, it's going to be a big component of that uh, in, injected into our cities and urban areas. Uh, so autonomy may emerge first in some different areas than maybe we, we originally thought where, where we thought maybe the car drive itself. Maybe it'll be first in trucks, and maybe then it'll be in delivery, and, and then it'll be running in the backgrounds, making our cars and vehicles safer. Autonomy definitely takes a significant cost out of the equation by removing the human driver. But there's also a lot of new costs that are added at the same time. You know, you've got to have depots. You know, somebody's got to manage these fleets of vehicles. You've got to, uh, they require a substantial amount of service to keep sensors calibrated and everything. Um, and if you're talking about vehicles that are transporting people, you know, um, they're going to have to go back to depots to get cleaned, uh, to get, um, you know, when, when, they, when they need uh, various other types of service. So there's a bunch of new costs that don't exist today, or at least that don't exist for companies like Uber and Lyft, because they don't own and manage those fleets. That cost is pushed downstream to the, to the drivers that operate their vehicles. But I agree with, with Jono that, you know, there's, there's a lot of other areas besides just robo-taxis where autonomy is going to play an important part. You've got companies like NeuroAI, Postmates, DoorDash that are de developing these autonomous delivery bots you know, that instead of sending a large vehicle, you know, instead of sending a whole car or a van to deliver a couple of pizzas to somebody's house, you, know, you can have a much smaller vehicle that you know, perhaps drives on the street, perhaps drives in a, is allowed to drive in a bike lane, but smaller vehicles that have a smaller physical footprint you know, to deliver couple of bags of groceries or meals or, or whatever it might be, as well as trucking you know, being another major area. Yeah, Jack, what do you think? AVs, do we need them for this mobility revolution? Well, I think we do. Um, I, I agree with what John has said. Um, we have about 35,000 people that die on the roads of, through, of, from crashes uh, every year. 
Um, and and uh, 94 or 95% of the reason of the causes of those crashes is the human being. So if we can remove the human being from actually uh, driving a car, I think that will reduce substantially those th that number. Um, do we need them? <laughs> it's, a, it's a big question. Well, what I'm do getting at is do we need them to make this mobility revolution really happen? Because presumably if the cost per mile yeah. is significantly lower, Let's say it's even just the same cost as owning an automobile. I think millions of people will give up owning an well, three, automobile. Yeah, three, Especially in cities, yeah, definitely. Yeah, three things that I think are, we also want to take into account. Like one, 90% of our time is spent in the vehicle in traffic, and people don't enjoy that. But they do enjoy driving. They do like driving the other 10% of the time. So they would prefer to be more productive when they're in traffic, and autonomy helps with that. Uh, the second thing is when we look at trucks, we talk about AV demand and potentially this being one of the largest job categories. But the truth is we believe there's twice as much truck demand as there is available capacity. So AV vehicles will unlock all of that demand. Um, so have, we could double the fleet tomorrow. And of trucks. Of trucks, and we'll, we'll start to satisfy some of the pent-up demand that's out there. Um, so there's, And then the third thing is that for deliveries, when we look at at number of miles traveled and the number of missions and trips that are that are that are used each year, for the first time we're starting to see people reduce kind of deliveries increase and people's trips to stores decrease to where they're no longer kind of making shopping missions. They're instead doing leisure missions and other missions that might be more more about quality of life than than going to the grocery store and other things. But but to your your question, you know, autonomy is part of the puzzle. It's it's just one piece of this larger puzzle. I mean, there's also, you know, the the other probably the other biggest piece is you know developing a, a it's a logistics op optimization problem, and you know figuring out what is the right vehicle to use for every one of these missions um, at the right time. You know, ha having the right number of vehicles in in the right place. That's the other thing too. Is they have they have to be positioned correctly, you know, and to and doing all that while minimizing deadhead miles. Because the other thing you don't want to do is you don't want to just flood the streets with various kinds of autonomous vehicles that are driving around empty, you know, uh, and just racking up miles without doing anything productive. You have you want to make sure that as many of those miles traveled are actually uh, productive and revenue-generating miles as possible. Of course, that's a problem today already. Mm -hmm. I mean, even before we get to autonomous vehicles, there's a lot of trucks, to use the industry jargon, that are deadheading. Yeah. You know, well, the, not the trailers just, not empty. Trust, but, but cars. I mean, it's estimated, you know, San Francisco, that congestion has increased 40% in San Francisco since 2010, largely due to, to the advent of ride-hailing. And uh, in New York, in that same time period, in Manhattan, the average speed, average vehicle speed in Manhattan has dropped 12 miles an hour to 8 miles an hour because of the congestion. So, you know, you do have to really optimize the entire system, that entire ecosystem. Jack, are you doing that at SAE, looking at the entire ecosystem? Well, yes. I mean, we, we started, uh, first we started, there are four elements that we're looking at. So it's the electrified, uh, connected, automated, and shared. These are the areas that we're currently focusing on. We have you know, hundreds of experts that are working in those areas, setting the first foundational standards uh, on how it should go in terms of deployment. Um, yes, so we do. We have, uh, it's not just the area of automated vehicles that we're setting the standards for. Um, it's the human factors. Uh, it's the um, communication protocols and so forth. Another, um, I think, 
part of that puzzle is the urban development. I mean, if we if we flood these streets with uh, ever moving um, automated vehicles, what happens to the parking lots? What happens to the tax revenue? Right? What what, what happens to the city's revenue? And how is it going to? So it's a very complicated pro problem that that will happen. It will be solved probably progressively rather than overnight. That will not happen. Well, let's take that thought further, and John, I'll, I'll throw it out to you at first. Where's this leave the automotive industry? This is an industry that needs manufacturing scale to be cost effective. And if you're starting to take some of that scale away because people are deciding they don't need to buy cars because they have all these other mobility services, where's that leave the automotive industry? Well, I think, I think they come to a, a choice. Do they want to be a manufacturer? Do they want to also offer mobility as a service or different mobility services? Or do they want to be fleet owners and, and other activities? And, and how do they leverage their retail networks to do that? Um, so they can, they, there's a role for the scale manufacturer. There's a role for the, for the fleet operator. There's a role for the, for the mobility services kind of end-to-end -end operator. And when you look at how much value is created and adding kind of extending into ownership further and further, there's a lot of value to be, be had. So I think each, each OEM will make a choice around which one's best for them. Do you think that we are going into a world of fewer cars? Uh, no. Well, if you were to look at how many electric vehicles are being put out there as design options, there's there's over 100 models and probably more than there is demand. So I think we'll see a lot of different experiments. No, but what I mean in in total, will car sales go down in the future? Oh, in in, in, in the United well, in the United States, we believe that we've plateaued in terms of of car sales, uh, in, in overall car sales. We will see. We do think we're going to see a penetration of mobility as a service vehicles into there, about a million vehicles, um, where personal ownership will come down by a million as a result uh, of that. Um, so, so yeah, a little bit. Yeah, Sam, how do you see it? Uh, absolutely. In the long term, there, there will be some reduction in the, the vehicle population. Um, for manufacturers, I mean, somebody, ultimately, somebody's still got to build these things, whether there's humans driving them or computers. Um, so there's going to be a space for manufacturers. Probably not all the manufacturers we have today, um, but you know, in terms of the volume, you know, that's also you know, it's not a simple one-for-one -one trade because if you're talking about vehicles that are now having much higher rates of utilization, that means that their rate of wearing out, their replacement needs are going to change. Instead of vehicles that you know have an average age of 12, 12 years and can easily operate for 25 or 30 years in many cases. Um, you're going to have vehicles that are going to need significant either replacement or significant refurbishment after every three or four years. And so there's going to be changes in the vehicle architecture to accommodate that. So uh, there, there's still going to be a, a place for large-scale manufacturing, but it's, it's going to evolve. Yeah, Jack, uh, what's the thinking at SAE on this? Well, you know, automotive uh, uh, companies, whether suppliers or OEMs, uh, are a major constituents of of our membership, uh, so w we want them to be healthy. Uh, we want them to stay in business, develop maybe a dis different business model, but uh, where and how it's going to happen, we simply don't know. Right now, we're on the path of securing the, the, the common platform for all of it for the, for the first deployments. I want to I throw in another angle on this because uh, it's going to happen and maybe it's going to lead into the, the dealership issue. Um, 
we came across a very interesting uh, uh, item, which is what happens when a, a, an automated vehicle or even connected vehicle uh, is in collision. Uh, all these cars will, will have now different sensors placed differently in, in within the car. What happens to the recalibration of it? Where does it go? Who's, the, who's, who's liable for, for, for that? Um, and so forth. So we're actually working with our colleagues from the aftermarket and repair industry in order to kind of look at this and say, well, we have to be ready for that as well. Yeah, you really do. And thank you for bringing up dealerships. Sam, what roles do car dealers play in all this? You know, as, as the market shifts, you know, to at least some degree away from personal vehicle ownership to shared fleets, um, I think that there is actually a place for, for dealer networks. You know, because in, in many cases, manufacturers are looking to have their, to op, own and operate their own mobility services. Like that's what Ford is aiming to do, GM Cruise. Um, so, you know, they can, they have that dealer network out there that they can leverage to provide some of those services when those vehicles need to be cleaned, when they need to be charged, when they get into a, a fender bender and need sensors recalibrated or, you know, if a sensor fails. Those dealers already have a huge, they have a service infrastructure in place in many cases in those same urban areas where these fleets are going to operate. So they, the, they can be well positioned to provide those services just as Waymo has teamed up with AutoNation and, and Avis to provide services for their, for their fleet of autonomous vehicles. Jono, dealers, what's, what's your crystal ball? Well, first, I think, uh, just to be clear, there, I don't think we're going to see the demise of the personally owned car anytime soon. Fifty percent of all cars are in rural areas, and we'll, we'll see, if anything, a, a bifurcation between urban areas and islands and how they evolve in, in rural areas. Um, and that said, the, all the mobility as a service is going to penetrate into urban areas. And because of that, the dealerships in urban areas are going to see see a lot of stress. They're going to see lower sales per dealer as a result and a lot more competition. Um, but they are the, the, the front line for, deal, for automotive companies. They have the touch point with the customer and if anything they're going to become more customer centric, um, faster and more transparent in, in their transactions with customers and more responsive to customer needs. Um, well to Sam's point, do you think they ought to start sticking their toe in the water when it comes to fleet management and fleet service and cleaning well, and all that? Well, I think for some dealers, this is an option for them to look at how they can increase their, op their offerings and increase the utilization of their service base. Uh, not all of them are utilizing all the capabilities they have. We've talked about all forms of transportation from autonomous cars to electric scooters. What about this concept of passenger drones? And we've done a couple of shows on this. Uh, Sam VTOLs, as they call them. Vertical takeoff or landing craft. There, it's, it's a fascinating concept, but I, you know, I'm somewhat more skeptical in terms of the size of the the market for that. I think that there will be places where it will make a lot of sense, but um, you know, I mean, these are larger vehicles, and while they don't need to take up space on the roads, you know, they have all the airspace above us to use. Uh, there's a lot of other challenges associated with them, and so I'm. I'm not quite as bullish as some people on how big that market's going to be. I think there's definitely a market, just not, it's not going to replace ground vehicles. Mm -hmm. Jack, is this part of your uh, mobility ecosystem that you're looking at? Well, believe it or not, yes. It's, it's a different area of, of SAE where we where do uh, aerospace standards, and actually this is already being brought up. Um, I'd like to see in that area, I would like to see some uh, synergy between FAA and maybe NHTSA in order to set some guidelines on this because I just, I, I, at this point, I, I don't see it uh, working smoothly. 
Uh-huh. Jana, what are your thoughts? Uh, we call it at KPMG, we call it getting mobility off the ground. We think congestion in some cities is starting to become uh, ripe for the need for this, especially in, in regions called mega regions. These are large areas like Southern California where you have very long distances that you're traveling and at some point, in some cases, it takes several hours where it could take only a few minutes in the air. Um, so we think, we think this is going to start to emerge in the next 10 years. Um, not at very high large levels, but as a premium option to a black car service initially for shuttles to and from maybe airports or other transportation hubs, and eventually evolving into air taxi service and, and, and even travel to edge cities by 2050 or so. So it's a long time to evolve. To make it evolve, there's a lot of eco, kind of the ecosystem that has to be built. We have to build an air, an air traffic infrastructure. We have to build ground servicing. We have to build vertiports. But there is actually a lot of infrastructure existing. Helicopter-like businesses have been operating for decades. Uh, primarily, they're operated on offshore oil platforms, and they run as many as 100 sorties a day, and they're, they're unaffordable to the average person. But as we introduce electric vehicle, uh, air vehicles, we increase the range, we demonstrate the safety, we gain social acceptance, people will start to use these as options. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Sam, we're down to the end here, but you raised the issue. Mass transit. Doesn't mass transit play a role in all this mobility service? I think it absolutely continues to play an important role, and, and because because of you know the, the the financial challenges that transit agencies have had, you know, using some of these other modes to optimize the to transit the mass transit for the heaviest traveled routes, so they don't have to service low density routes, and then use these other modes as feeders into that. I think is a, is where it all comes down. Jack, your thoughts? Mass transit. Well, I'm kind of scratching my head because you know my my background is in Europe, so when I go back to Europe for a visit. I see that uh, trend, uh, mass transport working smoothly and accurately and punctually and so forth, and, and somehow we cannot develop that system here. Uh, so yes, I'm all for it, um, but actually uh, at the same time, um, we're looking at the first mile, last mile, which is also part of that whole system of mass transport. Yeah, that's a great point. Mass transit only gets you so far. Then maybe these mobility solutions fill in the last mile? That's right. And I think for every city, the, 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 the route patterns, the topology, the, the, the tr mass transit capability and, and availability is different. So people will always go back to what's their total transportation time, what are their mode choices, how convenient are they, and which one costs is most affordable for their needs. And uh, I agree with Sam that it's going to be... Uh, kind of a, a personal choice for each person, which one's the best option, and, and mass transit plays a critical role in that. Well, fascinating discussion. We're going to see this all un unroll in front of our eyes over the next few years, but John O. Anderson, Jack Pokshova, Sam Abulsamid, thank you guys for a very interesting conversation on mobility services. Thank you. Thank you. Underwriting for the production of Autoline this week has been provided by RSM. challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM, audit, tax and consulting for the middle market.